Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Creature Feature, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today on the show, cyclones, swarms, and murmurations. We're zooming way out and looking at animals not as individuals, but as herds, colonies, crowds, and flocks. And we're going to find out that animals, including human animals, share more in common with particles found in physics than we may like to believe. Discover this and more as we answer the age-old question, when does an ant mosh pit get deadly? Joining me today to talk about the particle physics of bugs, reindeer, birds, and humans is particle physicist and co-host of Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, Daniel Whiteson. Welcome! Hi, Katie. Thank you very much. But I have to admit, it's been a long time since I've been in a mosh pit with humans, particles, <laughs> or ants. Is that all right? That is okay. Uh, I'm a uh, fan of metal, but I've never been in a mosh pit because it terrifies me. <laughs> Though I have spent a lot of time in Europe driving in circles in one of those roundabouts. Ah, yes. As a cyclone. It's called the American Trap here. <laughs> I'm so excited uh, to have you on for this episode because it's one of those times where usually I kind of focus on 
the individual animals' behavior, their biology. Maybe when I zoom out, I'm kind of talking about evolution. But in this case, it's looking at groups of animals and what happens when you have this massive swarm or a flock or a herd and how animals start to behave in ways that can be eerily un animal-like and more like a particle, even like subatomic particles or or elementary particles. And it's it's I think it's fascinating and a little spooky. Yeah, well, one of the amazing things that happens in physics is that you have these tiny little particles which have certain behaviors, but then when you get a lot of them together, a thousand, a million, 10 to the 27, new behaviors emerge. You know, you get things like phases, liquids and crystals and gases and plasmas that can do all sorts of crazy things that particles themselves can't do. So I'm very excited if we are now talking about emergent properties of animals. Are we going to be talking about like liquid ants and crystals of reindeers and stuff like that? (laughs) Pretty much. So yeah, animals have extremely interesting behaviors as individuals. But what happens when individuals get together as a group, there is something very strange. You get these group dynamics where the individual becomes part of a larger whole like a single molecule in a stream of water. And the ways that groups of animals behave, such as herds, flocks, swarms, and even human crowds, is uh, uncannily like water or a fluid or even a gas. It acts like it is a new thing, not just a group of something like reindeer, but a new phenomenon that is much greater than each individual reindeer. Uh, which is, I, I suppose, a very inspiring speech to <laughs> reindeer. Uh, but yeah, that is what we are talking about right now. Uh, let's talk about cyclones. So a weather cyclone forms when a core of low atmospheric pressure causes the air currents to basically like swirl around it, kind of like water going down a drain. But there are all sorts of cyclone-like activity in the universe. Uh, what I mean, I am not a physicist, so maybe this is wrong, but it seems like the Milky Way kind of circles around a center, like a big, very slow, but very huge cyclone. Yeah, absolutely. The cyclones are everywhere in the universe. It's super fascinating. And it's typically, as you say, you have some low pressure region or some force pulling you towards the center. So in the case of a hurricane, you have like warm water in the ocean, which heats and moistens up the air above it, which rises and creates this low pressure center and things rush in. And you might wonder like, well, why does a hurricane spin? Why doesn't everything just flow towards the center in straight lines? And the answer is that the earth spins And this creates this weird effect, this Coriolis effect, because winds at different latitudes are traveling at different speeds. And so, for example, the equator is traveling faster than other latitudes just because it's further away from like the axis of the Earth. And so if you have something which is on the same scale as the Earth, then, you know, particles moving away from the equator are faster. And that makes the whole thing spin, which means that on the other side of the Earth, they actually do spin the opposite direction. You know, it's not true that if you flush your toilet in Australia, it spins the other way. But cyclones really do spin the other way on the southern hemisphere. So a really big toilet, maybe it would spin the other direction. <laughs> Come on, Australians. I think, you just call- <laughs> I think you just called Australia a big toilet. <laughs> oh, no, I would never. It's more like 
a giant petri dish filled with the most dangerous animals in the world. But I, I love, I love you, Australia. I really do. <laughs> and it's not something that's limited to Earth. We see cyclones on Mars and dust storms. There are cyclones on Saturn. You know, the Great Red Spot is like the biggest yeah. storm in the solar system. That's a cyclone. So you're right. This sort of swirly behavior is all over the universe. And also in animals as well. So uh, the first thing that we're going to talk about is actually we're starting with a very small animal. One of the, you know, I wouldn't say one of the smallest animals because, of course, there are so many teeny tiny microscopic animals. But mm. we're talking about ants. So uh, there is something called an ant mill or death spiral, which I'll let you decide which one would be the better metal band album uh, name. But uh, <laughs> what this looks like is a spiral of ants uh, circling around and around. Usually there's like a pile of collapsed ants in the center. It's like this maelstrom, like this hurricane of ants. And they can basically do this behavior until they die. So they form this cyclone and keep walking around and around until they collapse and die of exhaustion. And this raises the question of like, good God, why would they do this? <laughs> <laughs> so are ants really just like little mental robots that will follow the instructions from pheromones even to their death? Pretty much. So yeah, it's interesting because ant colonies are quite intelligent. Each individual ant, while I hesitate to call any animal like stupid, they it's not so much that they're stupid, but they depend on a set of rules guided by their sensory abilities and they are will they simply lack the perspective to know that they are in a death spiral. So mm -hmm. the key thing is that this isn't just any ant that will do this. This is done specifically by army ants. So army ants, also known as legionary ants, is a name for over 200 species of ants. They are related and they all show similar behaviors, although it's thought that these behaviors may have evolved many different times in a case of massive parallel evolution, which is always really fascinating because if you have related animals and they're very similar and they have similar behaviors, you assume that they it's basically a tree branching off evolutionarily instead of basically having like many, many different types of individual parallel evolution without necessarily all sort of flowing along the same evolutionary path. Well, I think you said something really interesting a minute ago about how behavior emerges in ants that the individual ants are kind of dumb, but together they can be smart. Yes. I think that's just another example of this like emergent phenomena where the individual pieces are doing one thing, but together they're doing something really qualitatively totally different. Like our neurons individually are not that smart and some of them can like make decisions that lead you to your death, you know, press the metal, press the pedal to the metal on the mm -hmm. highway or something. Yeah. But collectively we do have some intelligence so that's interesting that ants can have both intelligence emerge and also these weird death spirals emerge. Yeah, yeah. It is a, it's definitely a double-edged sword, this group behavior. It can lead to an emergent greater intelligence, but it can also lack the perspective that allows them to see basically, uh-oh, uh, this is a bad situation. 
And so why doesn't this die out evolutionarily? Like if this leads to mass death of them, you think that they wouldn't propagate this behavior? Well, that's what's interesting is because typically the very things that make them such a successful species in typical circumstances is what occasionally will lead them to this death spiral. So army ants, like uh, any other kind of ant, have hierarchical eusocial colonies. They have a single queen, worker ants, and soldier ants. These are all females. And the soldier ants are like these beefy ants with large mandibles. The only male ants in the colony are there for reproduction. They have wings, tubby bodies, and in fact, they're called sausage ants because <laughs> entomologists are really judgmental. It's, it's very funny to me. It's like you have the worker ants and the soldier ants and the sausage ants. <laughs> And near Chicago, are they called sausage ants? Sausage ants, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I Don't put anything but mustard on your sausage ants. <laughs> nice old sausage ant sandwich. What, what would, that's not what they... They don't call them sausage sandwiches in Chicago. Like a, sausage sandwiches. Like yeah. a hoagie. Uh, <laughs> another key trait of army ants is that they are nomadic. So when you think of ants, you typically think of an ant hill... A colony, maybe it's in a hill, maybe it's in um, a dead log, maybe it's in your cereal in your kitchen. But it is one location that the ants stay in. They will build their nests and tunnels, and it's really fascinating. But army ants don't do this. They are purely nomadic. Instead of having a single home, like an ant hill where they live, they continuously roam forming large migratory rivers of ants. Wow, that sounds like a nightmare of ants. It is, actually. For anything that gets in its path, it is a true nightmare. So infamously, these rivers of army ants will take down any animal in its path small enough to fall victim to the voracious troops of pillaging ants. Now, I say small enough because, like, these ants aren't going to take down, say, like a deer, but... Uh, they can take down things that are much bigger than themselves. So things like grasshoppers, scorpions, spiders, giant beetles, anything that is able to become basically overwhelmed by these ants in a matter of just uh, a couple minutes. Like they will be taken down and broken down by these ants. I imagine I could be overwhelmed if I was swarmed with ants. I mean, that doesn't seem impossible to me. <laughs> if you, the thing is, though, as a human, you start to get bitten by these little ants and you go, ow, and you move away and swat your leg and you're all right. Annoying, yes, but unlikely to kill you. Now, if someone like tied you down, I guess, like a damsel on railroad tracks and then like <laughs> set you in the path of army ants and you could not move, I would imagine that, yes, you may be in a bit of trouble. Well, that's not a typical weekend activity for me, so I don't think I have to worry. But I did once have a brush with a river of ants in real life, no joke. We have these tiny little ants near my house in Southern California. And one time before giving my son a bath, I turned on the water and this river of ant poured out of the faucet. They must have been like climbing up the pipes. Oh, that's there must so have been weird. thousands and thousands of them. I was just so glad that I hadn't put my son in the bathtub before <laughs> turning on the water. That's like a that's like a horror movie trope yes, where you turn yes. on the faucet and a bunch of spiders come out. This time a bunch of ants coming out. Wow. That's incredible. Now, this is what happens when you encroach on nature in the Southern <laughs> California suburbs. Yes. These 
Army ants really do behave like an army that will go around pillaging and destroying everything in their path. And what's interesting is they don't really follow a single leader, but they follow the pheromone trails of their comrades. So if enough ants become interested in a target like an, uh, an insect that they want to eat, others will follow that trail. And in, as each one follows that trail, they are also depositing pheromones, so that trail gets stronger. You mentioned neurons earlier, which I think is really interesting because neural pathways work in a very similar way. Uh, you can strengthen neural pathways by using them, like repeating them. So like with these ants, if you think of these ants and the pheromones as like neurotransmitters, the more they go along the same path, the stronger that path becomes, the more likely other ants are going to join them on that path. Wow, so the mistake just compounds on itself. Exactly. And so another thing that is troubling for these ants is that army ants are typically nearly blind so these pheromone trails are vital for them to group together. It is their basically their only means of pathing, uh, of, of forging a path forward, and that is what leads them to their doom in these death spirals. So, you know, do you remember that game Snake? It would be on, like, those old flip phones, and it's like you're a little pixelated snake, and you eat other pixels to get bigger, but then if you hit your own body, it's game over, you die. Oh, absolutely. One of the best games ever invented. So <laughs> simple and yet so compelling. Yes. Yeah, no, I, that was that was very exciting. Obviously, to any Zoomers listening right now, this may be a foreign concept, but we used to have phones that would fold in half. And <laughs> we did not have a, an endless app store where you could get any number of wonderful, colorful, graphics-heavy games. It was uh, Snake, and that was about it, I think. And you you would just control this little snake, but it was endless, endless hours of fun. Um, <laughs> uh, but this is what happens to these poor army ants. If uh, an ant accidentally crosses an older pheromone trail... This will cause it to loop back around. So it hits this old trail and then it goes, instead of keeping forward, it's like, oh, here's some pheromones. And then it loops, loops back around on its own old trail and then it loops to the front again. And now that's even stronger. And it's like, oh, hey, this is a really strong trail. I should keep following it. Other ants do the same thing and they're all leaving their pheromones around as well. I think you can guess where this is going. So you end up getting this massive spiral of doomed ants, not understanding that instead of going forward on their typical path of destruction where they eat everything in their way, they are spiraling around and around until they are simply going to collapse and die unless something interrupts them, if something fortunately happens to fall in their path, and then they get diverted, that may save them. Otherwise, they are doomed. Doesn't that mean that you can protect yourself from these ants just by spraying that pheromone in like a circle around your house? Has <laughs> any animal like evolved yeah. to mimic this pheromone and like, you know, badgers or whatever? Yeah, you don't even really have to spray a pheromone at them. You would just kind of like, if you just guided an ant to turn around and hit its own pheromone path, that's enough. So I don't know of any animal, though, that's exploited this about them. 
but yeah, you know, that that would be a, an interesting evolutionary strategy, especially if you're an animal that like likes to eat ants, because if you lead them to loop around and around, basically you've got an ant buffet. Yeah, exactly. It's like an ant smoothie that makes itself. <laughs> I love that. I'm sure many insectivores would love that idea. I just don't know if any is actually taken advantage of that, but you should patent that and pitch that to uh, forest-dwelling insectivores. Well, our mascot here at UC Irvine is the anteater, yes. so maybe we should develop some like robotic anteaters that have that sort of strategy in them. There I'll get go. right on that. There you go. What could go wrong with robotic anteaters? <laughs> so the largest ant mill or death spiral ever recorded was described in 1921. It was 1,200 feet or 365 meters in circumference. That is a nightmare. Yes. Wow, what a horror movie. Yes. And the problem with the spiral is that it runs counter to their evolutionary strategy. When they form that river that's like marching forward and then kind of diverting to uh, insects that they find to eat, they have a pretty good strategy, which is as you go forward in the forest, you're bound to come across prey and be able to eat them. But if you're going in a spiral, even if you happen to luckily find some prey within that spiral, that's going to get eaten pretty quickly. Uh, and then you're not going to find anything else as you spiral around and around and around. And eventually they just run out of fuel, uh, which, you know, in biological terms, that means dying of starvation. So what fraction of all the ants on Earth were contained in this one spiral? Oh, probably in this one in 1921, I don't know, probably point zero 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 one percent of ants because there's a lot of ants. I know. So if this one spiral is so big, it must have had like, what, millions of ants in it? Yeah. Now you're telling me that it's a tiny fraction of all the ants. Basically, yep. you're saying that Earth is all ants. Pretty much. Yeah. That's, uh, I believe the mass, like if you added up all the mass of ants, I, I think it's much more than the mass of all humans. Uh, so what's fascinating about these death spirals is that there is not, there is no single ant that is deciding to go into this spiral. And even collectively, they have not decided that this is what they should do. They are following a set of straightforward biological rules like computer programming. And if they get stuck in the loop, there's no nobody to tell them to get unstuck. There's no executive looking at the ants from above. There's no like eyes in the sky ant traffic helicopter warning them on their little ant radios that there's bumper to bumper snarl ant spiral. So it is this emergent intelligence that when it goes haywire, there's no executive function to unhaywire it. I feel the same way sometimes, you know, when my brain gets haywire, I'm like, what is the magical button to press to fix this disaster? <laughs> well, that's what's that's something that's so interesting about human consciousness, right? Is we are if we look at our neurons as like these ants, you know, we do have this emergent intelligence from mm -hmm. neural activity but we do have this sense that we do have like an executive function we're able to like zoom out and maybe see problems as they're happening or are we like that that's a big question is like we we have the sense that we have a central executive control over our brains so we have 
that like ant helicopter looking above at the ant spiral. But do we really? That's that's a huge question in psychology. It's we ha there's no like part of the brain that you can point to like, aha, here, this is where the little you sit, you know, your the president of your brain sits and oversees all of your brain's activity. That that doesn't exist. Even though we have this sense that we have this like executive control over our brain. It's a it's not necessarily true. Yeah, it's actually a really interesting question and active discussion in philosophy as well, whether in principle it's possible for everything that we experience to just emerge from the complex sort of toing and froing of little bits following their microscopic rules. Can reductionism explain everything? Can even consciousness be explained from little bits and pieces? You know, like rocks we don't think are conscious, but they're actually made out of the same things that you and I are made out of. So somehow consciousness would need to like emerge from how those pieces are arranged and interacting with each other. But there are other philosophers that argue that emergence has its own special rules that there may be properties of things at one scale, like the human brain, that don't just come from the little bits they're made out of. They're like extra additional rules that come into play uh, when things come together. I don't know if I believe that, but it's an active area of philosophical debate. But then right. what isn't? Right, which again, kind of is uncannily like what you physicists talk about in terms of particle physics, where you have the individual rules of, say, a single particle, but when they're in a group, that group of particles will behave in a way that is is unique and different than what you would think just based on one individual particle's behavior might be possible. Yeah, and sometimes you can explain it in terms of the underlying bits, and sometimes it's a question mark. You yeah. know, in physics, we look at the passage of, in physics, we look at the interactions of tiny little particles, and they seem, for example, to be symmetric with time. Like the rules don't seem to care whether time flows forwards and backwards. But when you drop an ice cube into a hot cup of coffee, it definitely moves in one direction and not the other. So sometimes even in physics, without consciousness, we don't understand how rules emerge for the big stuff from the little bits. It's a really fascinating thing to study. Right. And what's interesting is like we don't even need little bits, right? We can have something as big as like a reindeer acting in a strange way when you put them in a group. So like with ants, I think it's easier to think of like, yes, of course, an ant may behave like a particle. It's basically like a teeny tiny robot anyways. But a reindeer, um, while perhaps not the most intelligent animal in the world, but I mean, what is this, a competition? Uh, they are, a, they're a large animal. They each have their own, you know, ways of thinking and, and they are, you know, we can have that sense of this animal's consciousness much more clearly than we can with an ant. However, reindeer also will form things like cyclones. Now, fortunately, if people are starting to get nervous that Santa's reindeer get into a death spiral of their own, don't worry. In this case, the reindeer cyclone is a great benefit to the reindeer. It protects them rather than harms them. So reindeer are real animals. They are not just Santa's means of conveyance. Uh, they're also known as caribou. They live in a geographical circle around the North Pole. And they can form massive herds of up to a million individuals 
Now, of course, uh, as I seem to increasingly have to say, um, you know, their populations are declining due to climate change, uh, but they still can form these massive, massive herds. So you're telling me that caribou and reindeer are the same thing? Yes. Yes, they are. So so every time I've ordered a caribou steak, they, they might be giving me a piece Rudolph. of reindeer? <laughs> yep. You might be eating Rudolph. <laughs> I do have to ask how often you're able to get caribou steak. I don't eat a lot of exotic meats, but my son is keeping track of the number of different animals he's ever eaten in his lifetime. <laughs> so whenever there's an opportunity, you see something on the menu like, ooh, ostrich burger, let's go for it. He's a bit like Darwin in that respect. Darwin loved <laughs> to eat animal, like animals he would newly discover. And one of his main questions was, what does it taste like? <laughs> does that go better with cheese on top or without cheese on top? <laughs> a new paper by Charles Darwin. <laughs> His hidden manuscripts. But <laughs> reindeer are used to dealing with threats, even aside from your voracious son. Uh, there are a lot of predators that have a taste for reindeer meat. Brown bears, polar bears, wolves, human hunters, even golden eagles will sometimes prey on reindeer calves. So you can imagine that reindeer have a reason to be a bit paranoid. But that makes me wonder if army ants have ever taken down a reindeer calf. Like, what's the biggest thing an army ant could eat? Could a cyclone of army ants take down a baby reindeer? Uh, I mean, they wouldn't inhabit the same uh, habitats at all. Mm, mm. I don't think they could take down a baby reindeer unless that baby reindeer, again, was like already sick or couldn't move. Uh, just... A horrifying idea all around. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, <laughs> I'm not saying we should do the experiment. I'm just saying it's an open question in science. Uh, you, you just disappointed some uh, biologists who are like, oh, I shouldn't do that experiment. Darn it. Uh, but reindeer are not so helpless. They have a trick up their furry little sleeves. When a danger threatens the herd, they will circle the wagons. They form a defensive cyclone. It's like a whirlpool of reindeer. Uh, and it is it is stunning to see. You should definitely look up video of this. And I'll, I'll include that in the show notes. But it is, it's, it's mesmerizing. And is this like a bug in the programming of reindeer the way it is for army ants? Or is this actually like defensive? Does this help them in some way? This is helpful to them. It is not a bug. It's a feature. <laughs> so <laughs> um, by making this whirlpool, they make it extremely difficult for a predator to focus on a single individual and take them down. Even an intelligent predator like a human will find it difficult to do something like aim an arrow as they swirl around and around in this dizzying mob. It's because, like, you can't just necessarily, as a predator, run randomly and start chomping. Like, usually the goal is you eye a certain target and try to take that down. Uh, but if you can't even keep track of what your target is, it's very difficult to take anything down. So this behavior has actually been observed by researchers in captive reindeer herds. Uh, when reindeer are corralled, they start to form the cyclone. And this is what's so strange, is that this cyclone seems to typically run counterclockwise. This preference for leftward movement is also paralleled by a preference reindeer have for using their left hooves 
to dig up grass. So they'll use these very these cup shaped hooves to dig up snow to get at like uh, the the vegetation underneath the the snow. And they tend to seem seem to favor the left hoof. And they also run in a leftwards direction when they form these cyclones, like this uh, counterclockwise direction. And it's completely unknown why this happens or if there's even a significance to this happening. Wow. And do they also vote Democrat? (laughs) I don't know. I'll do a straw poll of the reindeer, but I'm worried they just eat the straw. Um, (laughs) But I have a question. Is this surrounding the, is this surrounding the danger? No. Like if something wants to eat the reindeer, they'll surround it? Or the or the danger is like on the outside of the cyclone, and it can't even like and it can't even like visualize which one to eat. It's the latter, yeah. So they're not surrounding the predator. It's usually the predator is on the outskirts, and it's trying to pinpoint a reindeer to pick out to try to take down, but it can't because it's just this swirling vortex of reindeer uh, in the center. I have read that sometimes in the center, it's like the younger reindeer, uh, the calves. But I have been unable to find like research that has verified that. It's just like sort of observation of it seems like maybe the the younger reindeer tend to stick in the middle. Um, And what's so interesting about this is that I mean, first of all, I mentioned that, that I haven't be, been able to find research on whether it's true that like reindeer calves are in the center. It's because research on these reindeer cyclones is kind of surprisingly incomplete. Um, and so it's it's hard to really know exactly what's going on, which is a big hint for, uh, you know, Santa out there to start funding some research on reindeers. Um <laughs> But yeah, what is so strange about this is what exactly is going on with these reindeer? They don't use pheromones in the same way that army ants use. Um, But I suspect that it's not so much that the reindeer have decided to form this cyclone. There's not like a uh, all hooves meeting that they, uh, you know, decided like, well, if we come across a predator, let's form the cyclone. So it confuses them. Instead, what's far more likely is that they have a set of instinctive rules. And when you have each individual reindeer with that set of instinctive rules and you combine them in this herd, you get a similar group behavior as you see with the ants. So even though reindeer are more complex, more intelligent than an army ant, once you get them in this group setting, they're probably operating on a similar set of rules that these army ants. Instead of using pheromones, they're probably mm-hmm. using their relative closeness to other reindeer. And they're probably using directional cues from these other reindeer. And by using the set of rules, they then collectively form the cyclone without any individual knowing exactly what they are achieving here. It feels to me like when you're that kid who wants to get on the merry-go-round, <clears throat> like when you're when you're that kid who wants to get on the carousel, but it's already started and it's moving too fast, and so you can't even like grab onto one of the horses or the reindeer to jump on it. But that makes me wonder, like, in my mind, all carousels spin counterclockwise. Is that true? Is that derived from the reindeer hmm. vortex? That's an interesting, interesting thought. I think like the carousels tended to be, they, weren't they like originally sort of a, a a toy that was supposed to be uh, mimicking sort of uh, 
combat on horseback, like where you, you know, you'd have your lance and like, I think originally like there was like a golden ring that you're supposed to try to like hit with a stick or something while you're on the carousel that's supposed to be mimicking sort of lancing. So that, that is a really interesting question. But now I want to see a reindeer carousel because that would be much more biologically accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. We've talked about a couple of cases of group dynamics and how instinct can lead to complex mob behavior that can either be deadly in the case of those poor army ants or life-saving in the case of reindeer cyclones that protects them from predators. But... Now I want to talk more about the actual physics behind group behavior. So, Daniel, you are a particle physicist. Do you think that an animal can behave like a particle? Well, particles follow physical laws, and so do animals. You know, what can particles do? They can, like, fly through space. They can also change directions. But to do that, they have to, like, emit something. They have to, like, cast, they have to like shoot off a photon, for example. And like if you're an astronaut and you're floating through space and you want to turn, you got to fire a little rocket or like throw a rock off in one direction to change direction. So there's not that much that particles can do other than fly through space, change direction and bounce against each other. But, you know, put them together in a huge collection and then they can do all sorts of other weird stuff like become chocolate cake. <laughs> Oh, I like I like uh, the idea of particles becoming chocolate cake. 
But that does make this segue weirder because we are talking about starlings <laughs> who, as far as I know, you know, you can bake them into a pie, but that seems kind of <laughs> disgusting. Starlings are these beautiful little black, but also iridescent birds, and they have these white speckles. And that's why they're called starlings. They look like a star-speckled sky. To me, uh, they look like a night sky, and that rainbow sheen on their wings actually kind of looks like one of those NASA-colored images of a galaxy. They're, they're stunningly beautiful, in my opinion. Yeah, and so you're saying that you've never seen enough starlings come together to make a chocolate cake. <laughs> Not yet. One can hope through sheer probability. <laughs> well, you know, the number of particles in a chocolate cake is approximately 10 to the 26. So I think probably you just need to wait for enough starlings to right. get together and a huge cosmic <laughs> chocolate cake might just emerge. But again, another open question in science. I think the math checks out on that. So uh, <laughs> starlings do form giant flocks, not quite 10 to the what? 10 to the 26th is what you said? Yeah. Not quite that large, yeah. um, but millions of individuals. So when they are in these giant flocks, if you live somewhere where these starlings live, or if you've just seen videos, they will generate these murmurations. What a murmuration is, is when you see like a flock and then you see a pattern kind of like flow across these birds, like a dark band kind of flow across these birds. Um, the, it's these undulating patterns and designs where they kind of look like there's some singular shape-shifting creature in the sky or smoke or, or something. But really, it's just a bunch of birds responding to each other's movements. It's amazing. And I always wonder, what's it like to be one of those starlings? Is it wonderful? You're like doing synchronized swimming with a million of your friends or is it like a nightmare, like you're stuck in traffic, like an American <laughs> in a traffic circle in Europe, you know? Is it fun or is it terrible? Well, that's a really interesting question. I think it very much depends on the circumstances. Sometimes these murmurations are in response to predators. So in that case, yeah, I'd imagine they're a little bit concerned. <laughs> but sometimes these birds will form these flocks and start to do these murmurations. And it's not even exactly clear what they are responding to, what they're doing, or if it's simply fun for them. So just like we may sometimes run and jump when we are scared, when there's something coming at us, sometimes we run and jump because it's fun. So I think it's very situationally dependent how these birds feel. But I would say in general, they like the traffic. Like when they are inside that flock, if I was to kind of get into the head of a starling, I think I'd feel much more secure inside the flock than mm -hmm. on my own. I don't mm -hmm. think I'd feel claustrophobic or social anxiety. I think I would know if I'm surrounded by birds, I'm much like less likely to become a snack for some predatory bird. So Does that mean you also prefer like line dancing because you're surrounded by hundreds of people doing exactly the same moves and nobody can make fun of you? <laughs> well, it's why I enjoy improv better than stand-up because with improv, you've got a lot of people that cover your mistakes. Uh, with stand-up, <laughs> you've got nobody. And so if you start crying, everyone notices. <laughs> <laughs> if we bomb, at least we bomb together. Exactly, exactly. So I'm ve I very much have a starling personality. 
<laughs> the evolutionary advantage of these big flocks, these murmurations, very much is like the reindeer we talked about, where they can dodge away from predators. And by being in this huge flock, not only is it more confusing to predators, but it's just law of large numbers. You're less likely to be the one picked out of the group. Um, but the huge difference between these birds and the reindeer in terms of physics is the birds are in completely unrestricted three-dimensional space. Reindeer mm. uh, run along the ground. I mean, I know reindeer are three-dimensional and their movements are strictly speaking three-dimensional, but they are more or less on a plane and like spiraling around this plane, whereas the birds can move in any direction that they want. It's much like in space, when you have spaceships and in sci-fi, it's always confusing why you'd have rear thrusters and not every which way thrusters because you are in entirely three-dimensional space. Are you telling us that reindeer don't fly? I mean, you're just like really cracking the myth here for your younger <laughs> listeners. I hope they're ready for that. I'm only talking, of course, about the non-magical reindeer. Of course, oh, the see. magical reindeer fly, but Santa has to <laughs> select those reindeer and feed them royal reindeer jelly that causes them to sprout wings. And I think I'm actually talking about bees now or ants. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> um, birds fly in this three-dimensional space, up, down, side to side, uh, 360 degrees. Uh, and so this causes really interesting waves and undulations that you won't necessarily see in other crowd behavior. So statistical physicist Dr. Andrea Cavagna and theoretical physicist Dr. Irene Giardina studied the many starling flocks found here in Italy, and they found that these birds were acting similar to particles or molecules whose group movements can be described as scale-free correlation. So I'm not a physicist. So Daniel, stop me if I say something wrong here. Uh, but from my research, it seems like scale-free correlation is when individual particles or individual birds move not only based on their immediate neighbors, but on the entire flock or entire group of particles. Is that more or less correct? Yeah, effectively, it's when your choices, your directions are not just influenced by what's immediately around you, but sort of like longer scale forces or influences. That's exactly what is happening with these birds. The movements of one individual bird will affect the movements of a bird way over on the entire other side of the flock. So each starling will adjust its direction and velocity based on its immediate neighbors, but that also means that the starlings next to that starling change their velocity and trajectory and so on and so forth. Uh, and what this means is that because these birds are so sensitive to changing their flight behavior based on their neighbors and their neighbors based on their other neighbors, they're the actions of one starling in the flock has a, an impact, a measurable impact on every other starling in the flock and vice versa. And it creates this incredible complexity. It's amazing to me that it's not just chaotic. <clears throat> I mean, if you have so many objects that are very sensitively responding to other objects, why isn't it just like a crazy mess? You know, if you throw like a million ping pong balls down the steps, you don't get any sort of like emergent pattern. You just get insanity. And so it's amazing to me 
that the starlings don't just create a big mess. There must be some instinct to also follow their neighbors, not just respond to them. That's right. That's right. And that's actually a very good question because this is exactly what these physicists, these biological physicists are looking into. And they found that these starlings are operating on a very precise set of rules um, because they do not want to crash into their neighbors, but they don't want to leave the flock because if they're the slow one, the one that like makes a wrong direction and accidentally leaves the safety of a flock, they are going to instantly be a target of like a hawk. So it is so mm. important for each individual's survival to be able to set follow a set of rules, which is I want to maintain proximity to my neighbors, close proximity to my neighbors uh, without crashing into them. But I also want to change my direction sensitively to my neighbor. If my neighbor turns left, I also want to turn left. Um, but I, and so by the fact that they have these complex rules means that the entire flock actually starts to behave more like a fluid or a gas. And when you look at a murmurating flock of starlings, it really doesn't look like it, it, it looks like something kind of alien or, or you know, like when you look at, say, say, you know, when you blow a candle out and you see like the smoke kind of swirling around, it has these, to our eyes, unpredictable movements, but uh, it really is predictable movements uh, if you have sort of a mathematical model of how this smoke behaves, but it's very complicated. So we can't just looking at this smoke kind of predict which way it's going to go, what it's going to do. and the really weird thing is that these starlings are acting like the kinds of particles that you studied, Daniel, because they don't just adjust their velocity and direction mm -hmm. based on their neighbors, but the sharpness of turns. So Whoa. some physicists, some of these physicists who are studying these birds actually call it the spin of the starling, similar to the spin of an elementary particle. Wow, and that makes me wonder if there are quantum starlings out there that spin up or spin down, or if you can have entanglement of starlings. I guess that's what the starlings are trying to avoid, actually, is getting tangled <laughs> up in each other. Yeah, they don't exactly want to become entangled. <laughs> it does mean that they have the conservation of spin. So the cumulative spin of the flock is conserved when the starlings match their their neighbors. So like once a starling doesn't just like if one starling turns left, the other starling isn't just thinking, okay, I turn left now. It is also matching that sharpness of the turn. And, and like I mentioned earlier, the actions of one starling affects the actions of the entire flock and vice versa. And so this means that the entire flock of starlings can change its spin or the sharpness of its turns almost on a dime. And this allows them to change directions in response to danger as if they are a single organism moving rather than a group of birds. That's incredible. Wow, it's almost like together the starlings are a super brain. Yeah. Yeah, and what's weird is that the mathematical models used to describe the physics of starlings are identical to that of superfluid helium. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when helium is cooled to almost absolute zero, uh, it becomes like a, a liquid, right, Daniel? Mm-hmm. 
yeah, it, the viscosity drops really, really low, so yes. it can like slide past itself with almost no friction. And yeah, and that almost completely absent viscosity is the same thing that happens with these starlings. Because remember, they don't want to bonk into each other, right? Because that that would also mean death. Like if you stray too far from the flock, that means death. You collide with a neighbor and you both fall, that means death. So it is. In, in evolutionary terms, they have been turned into such precise flying machines where they are very careful not to collide. And by not colliding, they don't have friction. There's not that viscosity. Mm. And so they act like superfluid helium almost exactly. And I think the mathematical models that they use for these birds are the same ones or at least incredibly similar to the ones that they use for superfluid helium. It's incredible to me that we find these little mathematical stories that can describe the universe, and they don't just describe one part of the universe. You can use the same kind of mathematical stories to describe superfluid helium and also flocks of starlings. It's incredible, and it makes me wonder if the mathematicians who say that the universe itself is mathematical are really onto something. I mean, it is. There's something... I guess it depends on your relationship with math. It's either spooky or it's inspiring that math does seem to be behind so many things like you know you look at a flock of birds and it's like oh well you know this is described by the same equation that you use to describe something that is about as different from a bird <laughs> as you can think in terms of just like our superficial understanding of things like mm -hmm. superfluid helium that's that's not birds but it is acting you know, when you look at if you were like an alien who could only see in terms of these mathematical models, you'd think like, well, these two things must be very closely related. The, this flock of birds yeah. and this superfluid helium, because the, the math that describes them both is is identical. Yeah. And that would make you wonder, as an alien scientist, what happens if you super cool down a flock of starlings? Right? <laughs> Does it become even more viscous or even less viscous? I'm just saying the question is open in science. If you had become an evolutionary biologist instead of a particle physicist, you would run afoul of so many of the ethics boards involved in uh, designing biology experiments. Katie, I hope that wasn't an unintentional pun <laughs> running afoul of these ethics boards. That's gonna that's gonna get you even more trouble with the ethics boards. <laughs> Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. 
Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. So we've talked about animals and and their group physics, starlings, reindeer, ants. And you think that you may think that group physics are only for these simple animals and not for intelligent animals like us humans. But uh, you'd be wrong. So even highly intelligent animals such as people are subject to mob physics. Human crowds don't necessarily inherit the intelligence and decision-making of each individual human. Human brains in groups can be quite powerful, but that's only when the brains are capable of communicating. So like, you know, we have as societies developed amazing technologies, amazing medical breakthroughs and discoveries Um, But that's because that is our brains kind of pooling together. But when you're in a physical crowd, our ability to communicate one of our biggest strengths as humans can be hindered. So like speech or facial expression can get drowned out by a big enough crowd, a more chaotic crowd. And the movements of people actually start to mimic not a group of intelligent creatures, but a group of particles. That's incredible, but I guess it doesn't surprise me because, like, economics is a thing, right? Yeah. We can describe the behavior of huge groups of people based on the individual little choices they're making, buying and selling and not buying Nikes because they're more than 100 bucks and buying them when they drop to 90 bucks. So I guess that makes a lot of sense that there are emergent phenomena on the scale of societies as well. Yeah, and that's, like, in economics, like, when you have things like inflation that... Uh, increases too quickly sometimes that is due to these like small individual decisions that are being you know it's maybe it is what did i call it a scale free scale free correlations scale free correlations because like your individual decision making will impact the entire economy and the entire like economy impacts every individual's decision making so it's this feedback loop uh, and it's the same thing for or group physics, crowd physics, and it can get actually quite dangerous as the movements of people start to resemble a fluid rather than a group of individual people who have brains and can think. So researchers are actually looking into how to model human crowds through hydrodynamics using observational data from real-life crowd situations such as marathon runners, 
uh, because the hope is that by modeling human crowd behavior, we can actually save lives in crowd situations, such as in stadiums or other enclosed spaces where the crowding of people can actually lead to injury or even, in some cases, death. Um, so crowd crushes are a rare but very tragic event in which people get crushed in crowds, not due to malicious actions by other people, but simple physics. So like if you have a big crowd in a stadium and then a choke point, things can get very dangerous very fast uh, because the people at the back of the crowd can't see or hear what's happening in the front. So they may continue to move forward while the group of people in the front start to get condensed together, unable to move. Uh, and this is, again, it's like sometimes in these like crowd crush things, people think it's due to an unruly riot of people or people being, you know, behaving in some kind of bizarre way. And that's not at all the case. It's just because of the way that a huge group will basically run into the constraints of physics and then the inability of the people in the front of the crowd to be able to communicate to the people in the back of the crowd. So basically you're saying physics kills. So <laughs> we should respect our local physicist as if they were a swarm of army ants. <laughs> Your words, not mine. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it is, uh, of course, you know, like physics uh, is... It is the guiding principle of our entire lives and our, our physical bodies. And so when you're in a crowd, you have to respect the physics of a crowd just as much as you have to respect the physics of gravity if you're jumping out of a plane. <laughs> so <laughs> people who have survived crowd crushes or crowd collapse describe it as being carried away by a fluid force, like as if they're being carried away by a river Sometimes their feet aren't even touching the ground. They're just unable to move of their own volition and just being carried away like they're being swept away by a river. Uh, and when people, like if people see people ahead of them getting uh, hurt, they of course may want to stop and mentally they're thinking, oh no, I don't want to run into this person. I don't want this person to get hurt. But at that point, they're actually kind of stuck as being a particle and this like fluid force of the crowd. And that, I mean, it's one of the one of the more scary things that I can imagine. Yes, yeah, the famous person particle duality we know of humankind. Sometimes you're a person and sometimes you just feel like a particle. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and this has been a problem for humanity for as long as there's been crowds and has actually been recorded since the 1700s. Uh, sometimes it's blamed on the crowd, like during the Hillsborough disaster in 1989, where people in a football stadium were injured and killed during a crowd crush. Um, but this was not at all the people's fault. It was simply due to uh, the design of the stadium and the crowd control. There was, you know, it was, it is one of these situations where it's like you, if you have a jug of water and you pour it into a cup of water and it kind of sloshes and splashes around, that is not the fault of the particles inside the water. It's not the fault of the, um, the water molecules inside for splashing around. They are simply caught up in the group dynamics of being part of this uh, group of water molecules that will behave as a fluid. It sounds like you're setting up physics to take the blame here. <laughs> the fall guy 
Uh, physics is always the fall guy, really, when you think about it. <laughs> the whole reason we fall anyways. So I, I bring... Right. We'll take credit for that one. <laughs> so I bring this up not to not to demonize physics or physicists, but to demonstrate some of the importance of understanding biological physics. Uh, if you can model the fluid dynamics of a crowd, you could use that data to plan the construction of things like buildings and stadiums or the implementation of crowd control to make things safer for people. So it's these kinds of things that we research. It's like as amazing and interesting as they are, I think, on their own. Like I, I want to know that birds can behave like helium because that's really cool, but it can also be really important for our society. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic with all sorts of wrinkles in physics, in biology, and in psychology. Yeah, absolutely. But before we go, I do want to play a little game called Guess Who's Squawkin', the mystery animal sound game. So every week I play a mystery animal sound and you, the listener, try to guess who is making that sound. It can be any animal in the world. Does that include physicists? Could it be a physicist? It could be a physicist. That's right, you bunch of animals. Um, so... Uh, last week's uh, mystery animal sound hint was we've talked about the elephant in the room, but what about the rhinoceros in the room who's not really a rhino? So ignore the bird sounds, but did you hear that like hissing sound? Yeah, that sounds like what I hear in my freshman physics classes when I assign homework. <laughs> So you're saying that your physics students are a group of rhinoceros beetles because this is a rhinoceros beetle. Congratulations to the three fastest guessers, Joey P, Michael D, Shayna S, who guessed correctly. Also honorable mention to Zoe H and Grant W, who guessed the specific species of rhino beetle, the common rhino beetle from Australia. And thanks to everyone else who wrote in and guessed correctly. Excellent job, you guys. I am so, so impressed. I don't think I could be as good as you guys at this game. I make the game, but I don't guess it. So uh, great job, everyone. So this is the rhinoceros beetle, specifically the Xylotrupes ulysses australicus found in Australia. When they are bothered, they will hiss at you like a cat. But that hissing is not coming out of vocal cords. Uh, which the rhinoceros beetle lacks. Instead, it's stridulation, the vibration of its wing covers against its abdomen. Now on to this week's mystery animal sound. Don't blame the dog for this one, but it is the sound of a happy carnivore. So I promise that is not a rude sound. But if you think you know who is squawking, uh, you can write to me at CreatureFeaturePod at gmail.com. I'm also online at CreatureFeetPod on Twitter. That's F-E-A-T, not F-E-E-T. That is something very different. Thank you so much to Daniel Whiteson for joining me today. If you want to hear more from Daniel and hear him talk more about the mysteries of the universe and particle physics, uh, check out his podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe. And sometimes I'm a guest host on that podcast. So yes, check that out. Thanks very much for having me on, Katie. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show and you want to leave a rating or a review, 
I would appreciate that so, so, so much. Uh, I read every review and it means the world to me. It also really helps me out. Like when you leave a rating or review, it helps the podcast out. Uh, and it is a wonderful free way to express your uh, joy for the podcast and to help support the podcast. And thanks so much to the Space Cossacks for their super awesome song, Exolumina Creature Feature, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like the one you just heard, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? Wherever you get your favorite shows, I do not judge you, and I will not tattle on you. See you next Wednesday. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, The CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.